Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the Doctors in Podcast and our special series, What Plants Crave. I'm your host, Dr. Nadia Saba. My guest today is Dan Albert, Vice President of Unfold and founder of Farmbox Greens, a vertical farming company in Seattle known for growing microgreens. Dan was one of the first true blue growers I met in the new world of vertical farming back in 2015 at the third annual indoor ag con in Las Vegas. You know, his evolution from landscape architect to microgreen grower and now to leading projects to bring new crops specific for the vertical farming space is truly inspiring. For any of our listeners who are thinking about starting a vertical farm, this episode will be especially interesting and instructive for you. So grab a pen and paper. And for those of you wondering what makes a vertical farm so challenging for growing traditional horticultural crops, Dan, I have a feeling, is going to shed some light on that, too. Dan, it is so great to finally have you on our podcast. Thank you for being here. Yeah, thanks, Nadia. I'm excited to be here. And you're one of my few in-person interviews. We so are in person I know. in your office. This <laughs> it's is great. amazing. You are in Sacramento so often now, and I know we're going to get to why that is, Um but it's great to see your face yeah, more. Yeah, it's good to see you too. Yeah. So let's start at the beginning. Let's start with Farmbox Greens. How did you get into the business of selling micro, or of growing and selling microgreens? Um, you were a landscape architect, I think, before that, and somehow stumbled upon uh, microgreens. I'm so curious what led you down that path. <laughs> sure. Uh, so this is going back a while. So this is like circa 2008. I had moved to Seattle, um, took a job at an architecture firm and worked uh, in the built environment. So doing design projects, uh, both landscape and architecture, um, but then also some conceptual projects. Uh, and one of the ideas that we were working on at the time was local food production and kind of urban agriculture as a concept. And this this idea of vertical farming came into our minds and we were there was slowly starting to be a little bit of, uh, I guess, some interest in the subject. And I was enamored with this idea of local food production and sustainability and how, how agriculture could be in, integrated into the built environment, into the urban environment. And so I spent a few years on the design side thinking about what does that look like? How does that work? And I really... Uh, realized that to create a change like that, you actually needed a business. And so I started researching, how do you, you know, start a business? What are ways to start a business? Um, and came across this book called The Lean Startup, where it talked about small iterative development uh, of businesses to try things out. And it kind of gave me the courage to get more interested in the actual growing side and think that I could actually start growing a product. And in 2011, 12 timeframe, I bought a system and started growing in uh, an office building uh, in Seattle. Very small, it was 100 square feet, but it was all hydroponic, all under LED light. And started to just learn about how to grow crops and produce for restaurants. And that process like eventually became Farmbox and eventually moved me out of the design world into the entrepreneurial slash commercial ag space. 
Why microgreens? What are microgreens? Okay, so microgreens are always the question. What are they? How are they grown? <laughs> what I used to say is they're 7 to 14 days old uh, from seed, and they're harvested, packaged up, and you eat them traditionally as a garnish or in a salad in and of itself. But they have really intense flavor. So the arugula is very pungent. The basil is intense. Um, you can grow things like carrot and onion and cilantro um, all at the leaf baby leaf stage and they're delicious to eat they're great to uh, put on a dish and they're beautiful and so that was something that i could grow in a very small space and it was in mm. high demand by restaurants and my go-to-market strategy was to uh, knock on doors at mid to high-end restaurants and uh, try to sell some microgreens and it was a great experience. I got to learn what chefs wanted, what they were looking for, and how I could produce those things for them and get a production system that met their weekly needs. So uh, it wasn't a mainstream product, and I don't think it is even today. I think more people are aware of that product category, but it was uh, a niche market that had scalability for what I was building and how I was building the company. What was that first knock on the door like? So uh, I'll do a little shout out here. Uh, it was a guy named Martin Woods. He was a chef uh, in Seattle at a restaurant right around the corner from us called Republic. And I still think it's there. Um, and I had talked with him at an event and went in and brought our samples in our little red cooler uh, and had every question mentally answered that he could possibly ask me to talk about the sustainability of the product and the flavor and the shelf life and all these things. And we get in there and he's like, Hey, how's it going? Can let me see what you got. I laid all the, the product samples out. He just went down the line and started taste testing them. He was like, I'll take that one. I'll take that one. I'll take that one. I'm going to skip on that. I'll take that one. You know? And then it was like, that was it. And he's like, how much do I owe you? And I was like, Oh, Wow. It was that easy? Yeah, it was like $20 <laughs> or something. And I was I was so jazzed beyond belief. And um, Do you have that $20 bill framed? No, because oh. it was a check. And it was so funny because we were like, my wife was with me and I'm like, oh, we should frame this. this is, and then I'm like, nope, we have to cash this. We have to cash this check. We've spent too much money. But that started it. And it was like a... Uh, adrenaline rush to go in and meet new chefs and uh, get sales and build a business and kind of figure out how chefs think and work and to be able to supply them, you know, high quality products uh, at a reasonable price. And for them to get excited about the products was also, you know, a, a big deal for me because all of a sudden I'm growing something for somebody else to eat and consume mm. and you become a, a farmer in that sense, in addition to the business side. But there's that sense of responsibility and pride to go in and you go to the restaurant and you're like, whoa, we grew all those things that are on those people's plates. And uh, it's, that is cool. it is, it was a fun, um, especially early on, it was really fun to pick up new restaurants and go try new restaurants and meet the chefs and um, just kind of learn the restaurant industry a little bit. I have so many questions I want to ask related to this. I mean, how many in those early days? So, so, when you were selling to those restaurants, were you still growing in that office space or had you moved into your backyard yet? Yeah, so I had a production system in this office 
that was running for maybe a year or two. It had carpet. It didn't have an HVAC system of any note. Um, it was kind of a, a, a difficult growing environment, but it worked enough to get the customers. And so my wife and I, we bought a house um, uh, in West Seattle, which is one of the larger neighborhoods. And it had basically a large outbuilding that I converted into a grow room. And it was, I don't know, maybe five, 600 square feet, not that big. And I started to like re-engineer the system and build that up and be able to grow for chefs and be able to take on more customers strategically. So that evolution, that's kind of where my design mind came in. It's like, how do you, how do you grow and how do you continue to evolve the business to better serve um, your customer base? What does that mean to take on customers more strategically? Like going from that, that first sale with Martin Woods, I mean, how, how quickly did you build up customers and at what point did it make sense to grow at your bigger scale? And how many customers did you need at that point? Yeah. Well, for us, it was it was a little bit of just kind of looking at the costs associated with growing where we were and having the lease. And it was small. And these are low-cost, low-dollar items at the time. It felt very big. Uh, but it was a process of figuring out the needs of the business and figuring out if we could actually build those. And early on in the vertical farming industry, it wasn't clear how capital was going to be raised. And venture mm. capital at that point, uh, to me, was a little bit uh, far flung. Maybe there had been a deal or two done, but I don't know uh, early on. So it's like, well, you have to go to a bank. And the only way you can go to bank is if you've got income. And it's a combination of of getting income and then reinvesting the profits and then getting a little bit more income and then getting a line of credit and being able to build up the business uh, organically compared to how a lot of businesses are grown now. Different, different, um, different business approach for sure. But we always were just ahead of our production. So if we had sales, we had 10 customers, we had capacity for maybe 12 customers. And by the time we got to 12 customers, we made sure we built up enough capacity to get to 14 or 15 and then it mm. became you know from 20 to be able to go from 30 and 30 to go to 40 and 40 to go to 60 and so at each time we just incrementally stepped it up and improved the systems brought more online brought the people online to help with the process until you know our garage was full of microgreens our basement <laughs> was completely full of microgreens and we were running this little cottage business out of a very relatively small space. But uh, at that point, I was doing it full time and had three or four employees working weekends, doing farmers markets, serving about uh, 50, 60 restaurants a week, seven farmers markets in the summer and doing a little bit of retail. So wow. it was all over the place. And it wasn't always pretty, but it was bootstrapped and it worked really well. And we always kept uh, profitable. How did you move all that product around? It was a process. Eventually, we bought a van to drive it around. But <laughs> for a while there, it was, it was, you know, it didn't matter. It's like when I had a job, like I, I would bring some of that product to work with me. Mm. And then at lunch, go do the restaurants that were near me at lunch, you know. And, oh, wow. And so um, that was just kind of the, the process. But microgreens, again, you know, you're not dealing with pallet loads. 
you're dealing with, you know, commercial refrigerator fulls a week. That's what I was going to ask. Like, how much does your average restaurant customer it, buy? It depends. You know, it, it could be low volume, um, you know, $50 a, a restaurant or $200 a week. And we just kind of try to keep our delivery uh, timing and volume appropriate. But I always guaranteed our product. So that was always a, a big deal. So what does that mean? So if, if I sold product to a, a restaurant on a, on a Thursday, um, they would be able to use it Thursday, Friday, Saturday through their peak. And I'd call them up on Monday and say, hey, do you need more product? How was your weekend? And if it was great, you know, and they sold out, they're like, yeah, bring it, bring more. We'll harvest it, bring it to you on Monday or Tuesday. Okay. If it was slow, maybe on Thursday. Or maybe they had a bad week or we're going into fall or something and the restaurants were slowing down. They could keep that product through a 10 to 12 day cycle mm. and it still was fresh because yeah. we were cutting it and bringing it to them predominantly at the beginning of a weekend. And if there was ever any product that went bad, I just would take it back and give them a discount on the next clamshell because I wanted our best product going out the door. Yeah. Yeah. What, what were your best products? What did everybody want to buy? So uh, arugula was always a, a uh, great product. I love um, microgreen arugula. Yeah. Arugula uh, was, a, was a big seller. Pea shoots were amazing because mm. of the volume. Um, we did a lot of radish uh, early on. We did a little bit of cilantro. That was kind of a problem early, but we eventually figured out how to grow that just because it's hard of the, to grow. the germination and, and oh, kind of your is. substrates. Yeah, yeah. And, yeah. It can be a real challenge. And a lot of these, each crop was slightly different, so we tried to... Uh, create products that maximize the efficiency of the turn rate on the system because we we're limited. Um, but we're able to build up quite a good book of business and it was pretty consistent, especially during the summers with doing all the farmers markets and they run year round in Seattle. So just the, the volume of people in the summer, it was it was an effort all summer long to get through it. Wow. Um, yeah. And so you said all all of them are a little bit different. So I mean, if you describe pea shoots, radish, and arugula microgreens, how are they? How are they different? Do some of them have shorter or longer growth periods? Do yeah. they need different conditions? Yeah. So, like on the short end, so <clears throat> something like pea shoots, you can go from seed to harvest in seven days. Uh, radish, you can go from seed to harvest in a similar amount of time. But radish has the advantage of it really not only needs to be under light for two or three days. So your turns in mm -hmm. a week on that space where that radish lives under your lights is 2x everything wow. else. Something like arugula needed a couple days germination and then maybe seven days on the system or something like that. And so I think about it as germination time, which was much more efficient because you could stack them up. And then the on the rack growing time. As we went on with the business, we eventually got into really long cycle crops like uh, uh, red vein sorrel and uh, basils that could be on as long as four weeks, I guess. Oh, yeah. wow. And so, you know, skipping ahead a bit, but as the company continued to grow, we started to blend those products together. So we had these multiple growing streams that are coming together at the same time to create a uniform product. And that's scheduling and how do you reserve space on the system as it grows, but yet still getting the maximum efficiency from the capital that we put into it. Mm -hmm. um, you know, that's the business operation side of it. Um, I mean, are microgreens just germinated regular plants? 
Well, this has kind of faded off a little bit, um, I would say, in the last few years. Uh, at the time when I started, sprouts were often confused with microgreens. They're not the same? They're not the same. So sprouts are germinated usually in water, and they're not necessarily exposed to light. They're notorious for um, human pathogens yeah. building in them. The idea with microgreens is you're growing them just as a young plant. You're just harvesting them, them early. So they're grown traditionally with a rootstock structure. Uh, you have your nutrients, you've got your light and airflow, and the contamination risk is less. I don't think it's ever zero, but it's less than what you might experience with sprouts. That whole like discussion was a lot of the education that went in to our conversations at farmers markets because sprouts had at the time, which I still think they do, there's very few sprout growers anymore. Yeah. And at the time that we were working uh, in Seattle, you know, 2014, one of the big sprout companies had just recently had a recall. And so we had to kind of fight our way through, but that goes on in oh, man. commercial lettuce too. I mean, romaine or, you know, a lot of the, <clears throat> the romaine recall a few yeah, years sure. ago was a big deal. Um, and, and hurt a lot of indoor farms as well. I mean, I feel like with sprouts, one of the common ones I see is alfalfa. Yeah. Is there an alfalfa microgreen? You know, we never did any of those. Those are always like um, uh, kind of fodder related. Okay. And I mean, sure. I just, I just <laughs> never got into them. So it was always like I was following the culinary trends of whatever the chefs were asking for. And we would get into some esoteric stuff. Like there's this uh, Mexican herb that's kind of a, a weed, really, that is called Epizote. Okay. And it's kind of got this faint gasoline flavor. It's it's a unique microgreen. <laughs> and it's only for the right, you know, discerning chef. But, you know, you get into these products and you're like, I can't do everything, but I can do a few things well. And we'd often say no to a lot of these microgreens who are just... Too difficult to grow. They're very cool. They, they have interesting flavors, but if we couldn't perfect them and get them right, then we weren't going to offer them to our chefs because it just became this. We'd get a good batch and deliver it. The chefs love it, and then they want more and more and more. And if you can't do that mm. consistently, they don't want to know about it. You know, so who created the demand for the microgreens? I mean, you, you're. I mean, this is basically a, a business to business operation. So. I mean, that first time, that first experience you had, you showed him, the chef, you know, the, the five or six different varieties. And he's like, I want this one, this one, not that one, this one. And I'm assuming you did that initially with everyone. Was there a time like where it kind of switched and the chefs or consumers were saying, can you grow this for me? Yeah, I mean, that would happen. And I still like, I still once in a while get inquiries about like, very specific microgreens and you're like I, I can't help you at this point and i don't know i'm sure that people can because i get it but what what happened in the microgreen kind of like trajectory is uh, you know it started in california in the mid 90s and it was more localized it was not a trend that was like of the highest culinary level but it was just like fresh product to put onto mm -hmm. or include into a salad it or makes top it look pretty fish. and crunchy right. and yeah. right so it's kind of a, a, a shorthand garnish if you will well as that kind of west coast cuisine picked up and the farm to table thing 
exploded, you know, through the early 2000s and into when we were selling predominantly in the marketplace, the adoption rate and the chefs who knew or had worked or were, were buying microgreens kept getting more and more. And there were some big suppliers in the U.S., and there still are, and Farmbox is still one of them. But there became a familiarity and a sort of reliance on microgreens to do very certain things on specific dishes to allow for uh, less prep sometimes. So some chefs didn't want to be prepping out ingredients on the line. They wanted to be able to just put a garnish on. So there was like some functional uh, elements that uh, led a lot of chefs to transition to just a different product category. Instead of taking, you know, arugula and chopping it up into small little shreds of arugula, they could put these greens on there that had arguably more flavor. You know, they were more um, able to handle heat on the plate so that they could, you know, plate it and get it out to the customers to look good. So wow. there, there was all these like ancillary things going on. and You created like a labor efficiency. Yeah, in some ways. We did, for one restaurant in Seattle, we, um, there was a big customer of ours. We really looked at the labor efficiency standpoint of it because they were just using cilantro by the ton. And they were cleaning cilantro oh, every morning. God, it just, it's such a it's, pain. <laughs> it's, it's kind of the worst. And so, um, there's so many damn leaves on yeah, that stem. Yeah, and it's like, and you got somebody in the back that's there at 10 in the morning and they're picking leaves off for service. that starts at five. Oh my God. And you're God. like, this is not the best use of time. How about I just cut these and we'll put them nicely into a package so that you can utilize them. That's awesome. Yeah. Okay. So you started with in an office, then in your garage, in your backyard, and then and then what happened? Then you went kind of big. We went kind of big. Yeah. So what what occurred was we reached a uh, velocity at our house slash garage that was noticeable to some of the bigger players in the industry, the big distributors. So we had had a few conversations hmm. where. They were interested, right? You know, people are interested not only the vertical farm aspect, but the fact that I'm producing a product locally that's of high quality. And one Mm. differentiator that I really focused on as we built the company is that I wanted great quality produce. And the production system to me was very like, it was an important part of the story. It allowed us to be local, but it wasn't the thing that I was building. I was building a produce company, not a technology company. So in 2016, we had some, you know, uh, opportunity to take part in a few great uh, press stories. And one of those press stories caught the folks at Charlie's Produce, which is a, um, I think that they're the, the largest independent produce distributor on the West Coast. And they span from California all the way up to Alaska and headquartered in Seattle. And they were like, hey, what can you grow for us? And I had worked a little bit with one of their subsidiary companies that was more a little bit smaller scale restaurant kind of uh, more high touch restaurant type distributor and when Charlie's came in we started talking about well what is the market opportunity and how much are they already selling and where are they bringing it in from and how do they get product to market and that required uh, often flying it up from California and so when you start flying and overnighting produce, no matter what you do, the costs go very high mm-hmm. and the sustainability is less than ideal. And the product quality deteriorates a little bit. Not much, 
but enough. And so, you know, when I talked about that kind of 10-day product window, well, maybe the stuff coming up from California was seven days. And to a chef that's that's worried about margin, which they all are, and what their plate costs are, to be able to not waste product is a big deal. They don't want to throw anything out. And so it leads to a little bit more of a conservative buying pattern. Hmm. But if you bring great products to market, well, then uh, you open up opportunity. And so that's why, you know, Charlie's and I started talking and eventually the business was acquired by Charlie's Produce to bring localized microgreen production to their network of customers, which was big. And so for me... And not just in Seattle, but It was not just in regionally. Seattle. It started in Seattle and then we started shipping to Portland, moving a little bit of product out to um, eastern Washington, uh, even up into, uh, uh, into Canada a little bit, uh, into Alaska. It just depended on where the customers were hmm. and how we could serve and making sure that we get great quality produce to those customers. And so it was a very customer-centric mindset, but it was also the sustainability aspect that, that we're able to grow these things in the middle of Seattle. So that's what we did, and we, we came together. Um, they acquired, acquired the business, put up the capital to build out a much, much larger farm. It moved from my house into um, uh, one of the buildings that they had down in, in just south of the stadium district. And I built out uh, about a 10,000 square foot farm between grow space, you know, all the areas that service that, the storage, the processing, everything. So not a huge project, but big enough at the time where it was substantially larger than we had grown before. I mean, maybe it was like uh, probably six to 10 times larger, somewhere in there. It's a little bit hard to compare apples to apples because I did a production system upgrade at that point as well. And the production system was so much better than the last one that the, the actual square footage yield increased, you know, a, a fair bit um, from, you know, garage-based system to a highly controlled, more professionally designed and built hydroponic system. So perfect segue because I really want to ask you about that scaling up process and and not just that you're producing more and and serving more restaurants and customers which is awesome and reducing sustainability or reducing sustainability improving sustainability one of the thoughts that comes to my mind is just reducing food waste what you just said right is that if you extend that shelf life that these chefs and even consumers from the farmer's market are going to waste less. Even when I think about like chopping the leaves off of the cilantro, you're not even throwing away that stem. Yeah. Um, and if it's 10 days, then that gives the chefs, right, the restaurants an opportunity to get through two weekends to make mm -hmm. up for maybe a slow weekend the yeah. first time. Um, that seems huge to me. But in addition to that, the, the scaling up process, like, what were sort of the gro those growing pains in terms of production system, in terms of climate management or water use or all the things that, you know, all the challenges I can think of, of growing into a bigger space? What were your experiences like? Yeah. So I had, I had taken it from the original system and I created a, a second nutrient film technique-based system. Were you, you, by the way, were you using commercially available technology or were you it building was, your own? It depended, right? So we use commercially available lighting and 
commercially available trays. Okay. Um, the substrate was always something of our knowledge base. And uh, I went on to improve the substrate and build out a newer product line that met, you know, sustainability and product goals to help efficiency. But at each level, I had to make the decision, am I a farm or am I a technology company or am I a data company? And, and uh, I was always of the mindset, like, we have to grow and sell product and the customer feedback is what we need. And so how do we get that continued flywheel of revenue to drive the business and to do that you cannot layer in very many layers of design or engineering or product creation in that without having some real cost problems because you're only monetizing it with selling quote-unquote lettuce or microgreens so when i approached building a a system I wanted as much off the shelf as possible to be designed and put into a warehouse in as close to conventional as possible with technology that had been proven and that I wasn't going to risk having a startup and then a shutdown. That was kind of my key constraints. And so what we did, you know, even through the transition from one production system at, at my house to the production system at Charlie's is I overlapped them. So we were doing them simultaneously because you can't like short customers. So we built up the other production system oh, when we shut down the other, you know, mm-hmm. so there was no, to the customer, they would have never noticed that we bought a new quote unquote tractor. Like the, the field was always growing, <laughs> um, but we totally upgraded. And there were parts in which I designed down to like a tray level and we went out and did the molds and the custom manufacturing there were also parts that we said who are the best partners that Mm -hmm. we can work with and we went and said we're going to go buy those like i know that lights are inexpensive to make but i don't want to make lights so go buy the lights that seems like a uh lost leader, if you will, to try to manufacture better than some of the major companies that were in the market. Did you try making your own something and then decide, eh, that was too hard or too expensive or too something and you and then you switched over to something that was available? You know, we never did that. No? I don't think so. I nice. mean, maybe there were things like little <laughs> stuff, but we never were like, oh, we're going to build a system and then all of a sudden you've stranded $50,000 right. in capital. Right, okay, that's You're good. like, oh, that's the... <laughs> That's the very large paperweight in the corner. You know, that, that, that we were fortunate we didn't do that. And I kind of think that that's like just how I think through problems. Like, you know, in the design world, you come up with a lot of solutions and some of them seem great right out of the gate. And then you have to like do this due diligence process where you're going through and vetting and improving and selecting a few and then selecting from those the one or two things that can work and then going and implementing it. So we tried a lot of different things at the uh, at the Charlie's farm that was very different from our, our first and second iterations. It was 10 levels tall and we didn't use a scissor lift, but we were able to get up there and pull the trays down. And, and it was not great. Like there were times where you're like, this is not the best, most efficient labor. However, it's working. So 
in order to fix some of the problems became this like analysis where you're like, yes, we can solve this, but the costs are so great that it's, you know, the mm. labor was still the solution. So I, I, I learned a lot through that process about how to build and how to create things and how to iterate and not make the big mistake, if you will, sort of, you know, fail small, like try things out on a small scale before you build a whole farm of it. Yeah. But at the time it was, it was difficult because a lot of the farms were raising big capital and there was a lot of interest in the technology side of things. And I still think that that's playing out as we speak as to how that is going to ultimately help or hurt companies, just how much exposure they have to like sort of the internal design aspect of owning everything from, you know, the very beginning to the very end of the production process. Yeah. Yeah. I, you know, I, I have a few questions embedded in some of the stuff that you, you just described. Um, one of which is, let's start with the scaling, which is what doesn't scale well? Well, you can overscale, right? You can, you can get, there are these moments in a business where, the business is running right up to redline, which is probably the best place to run it. What's that mean? Just like running, you know, running the engine right up to, there's a point at which an engine is very efficient, yeah, right? Yeah. And if you go too far to redline, you're like sort of burning it out more quickly. And if you're going too slowly, it's not running as efficiently. When you get it in that sweet spot, it's awesome. Um, what is difficult is when you're on either end of that and you're trying to affect that change to get you to uh, maximum efficiency. And so what doesn't scale well is if you're trying to do something that your system wasn't designed to do, and then that becomes your business, you know, or if like, let's just say we were growing microgreens, right? And we had experimented with doing baby leaf stuff. And so my, the way we designed our system, it wouldn't have scaled well for mm. anything other than the products that it was doing. Got it. I do think, though, that the problems that I was solving effectively with the team, with labor or with a little bit of extra kind of elbow grease, those don't scale. You can't infinitely scale people and systems. Mm. It just doesn't work like that. At some point, there is the, these economies of scale where you can automate, where you can add more bespoke systems that are designed specifically for your operational process. But it's a tricky question because you don't want to uh, find out that something can't scale right when you need it to. Ah, so. yeah, yeah. In terms of, you made the comment, am I a farm or a technology company or a data company? What's the difference exactly? Well, I think it's the product, right? It all comes down to who's the customer and what's the product. So a farm is growing something for a consumer to eat. Uh, and you're trying to do it, you're trying to grow that product and sell it for more than it costs you to make it. That's really important, but that's also a fixed, what I would call a CapEx return ratio, where your capital that you put into your farm system can only yield so much in a vertical farm, maybe in many different types of farms, where if you put in a million dollars, that million dollars can generate you $500,000 or a million dollars or $2 million of revenue. And then that's it. It's just not like the plants are magically going to be faster growing. Mm. The technology side of things is like we're going to automate and solve labor issues and bring down the cost of goods with immense scale. 
I think that that process takes a lot more time. Like in a lot of ways, I was going to the well with a bucket, and this is the go to the well and build a pipeline approach. Mm-hmm. So those those are different. The final kind of part of that is data, and the idea that the, the data has value. How do you grow better? How do you grow more efficiently? How do you analyze that data and put it out in a way that improves your product quality? The challenge with all those business models is that you have to have a way to monetize it. So if you're monetizing a data stream and a uh, an engineering stream with lettuce, you have to be big and it's got to be really big. Whereas if you're a farm, it doesn't have to be enormous and you can operate really well and operations become the focus of the business. So they're different fundamental approaches, they're different businesses and they're different customers. And I think early on in vertical farming, all those things got mixed together and they've never quite come apart. So everybody has their own thing that they're doing and their way is better than somebody else's way. And I'm not able to always judge those you know, what's, what's best. Yeah. But I think that ultimately the market will tell you that once you get the products in there and if they can stay in the market for the long term. Do you think in the vertical farming space right now that most of the businesses or operations are farms or technology or data companies? You know, I mean, it's hard to tell. Mm. I think that there are a variety of all those types of businesses. And I think the ones that are successful will know what they are and who their customer is. Mm. And because you think it's kind of diluted right now that people yeah. think that they're everything. They're everything, right? Yeah. In a lot of ways. I mean, this has been the case for as long as I've been <laughs> going to these indoor ag con events. I mean, how many times, you know, uh, do those presentations go like we have unlocked the secret, you know, to growing indoors. And uh, I think that there are many ways to grow indoors and many ways to run profitably. You could have the best tractor or widget that grows the best crop, but if you've got a bad operator or you've got a really good operator who's running a mediocre piece of equipment, mm-hmm. they can still do a pretty good job. Yeah, yeah. So it's 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 always this idea of technology versus operations and how do they come together to get maximized output. Yeah. And over time, it's going to sort itself out. And I think it is a little bit right now. I think that there's there's some farms that are winning and some farms that have had challenges. And you know, if we're really going to build an industry around this, a lot of people have to win, and they have to win big to even be on the radar of soil-based growers or grocery retailers that are the big multinationals that can pull product in at a very, very low price points. And so if you really want to talk about like major disruption to the produce markets, it's going to take a continued level of operations plus technology plus data. It's going to take all those businesses, but they might not all be in the same company. And they might be, you know, across different companies, they might be working together. Uh, you know, the industry has some room to grow in that yeah. sense. I was gonna just going to ask, I mean, do we need a major disruption in produce, in production? Well, this is always the, the question, right? It, the idea of the sustainability of the produce industry and the one that always comes up is like, 
okay, you're trucking from California to New York, or you're using 95% less water. Um, my are question, we? Somebody my, tell me that we my are, right? Is, Show like, me the data. <laughs> I have a theory about the origin of the 95% less water use, and... Um, I would like it to be proven. Like me too. Like open it, open up the books. Show me exactly Please. how that is done. So, is there a disruption that's needed? I could, I would definitely say, yes. But it's macro, and you, if mm. you're, if you're really looking at sustainability as a whole, you have to be really transparent and honest about bias that you want a solution to succeed, um, whether or not it's right or not, or whether or not the facts that you're finding. Uh, sort of validate a hypothesis that you're putting forward just because that's your hypothesis. Yeah. So I think that in that sense, the industry needs to be a lot more collaborative, sharing information, making each farm better. But the, the ultimately, they're just not set up to do that. Not yet. Um, but I think there are other examples of industries where that has happened. Mm-hmm. However, will vertical farms shake up you know outdoor ag probably not right away but you could imagine the production systems that are being built now or learning you know the learnings that are going on now having significant impacts in produce i would think is the kind of longer term play yeah and there will be more indoor farms and there's more of them coming online all the time yeah and that's i think really where it's going to be it's going to be at the consumer level who's buying what and what's the price point yeah I really want to see the vertical farming industry complement, with an E, complement, field agriculture. You know, when I think about here in California, I mean, we are the salad bowl of the country. And uh, it would be very disruptive if all of a sudden, you know, there are 100 vertical farms in California. I I think it might be disruptive. I think it would be really hard to actually, like, wedge yourself in uh, here in California. But, you know, with climate change and the drought and the smoke and the fires and everything that we're dealing with here in California, I would rather see the vertical farming industry rather than saying that we're competing against field farmers, is that we're providing a solution for these farmers to to shift how they're growing, right? As opposed to we're going to knock them out and they suck, you know, and they're doing everything wrong and they're bad and evil. I'd rather be like, here's an alternative to protect your crop from smoke, to protect your crop from, you know, animals that are trouncing through your field um, or or whatever it is or that can use water more efficiently. I want to see the conversation shift more towards we're working within the farming community as opposed to against. Yeah, it, it feels very, uh, on occasion, like it's uh, antagonistic Like it's us against them or yeah. something. Which doesn't really equate to uh, meaningful change. Yeah. I think uh, it's not that any farmer was want to be bad necessarily. <laughs> no, like right. they're not out there like, hey, <laughs> I want this to not work uh, and I want to be unsustainable and I want to use... You know, the opposite is like, do you think a field farmer wants to use 95% more water or whatever, you know, like, <laughs> right. whatever, whatever, the, no, it's not a, you know, some, you know, 25 times more water than right, an indoor farm. Right. They're not going to advertise that, right? <laughs> and I think that that's where things get a little bit muddy is because it's very much 
seen as an outsider's solution to an industry that isn't quote unquote uh, sophisticated. And I think agriculture yeah. is often seen as kind of like somewhere else and uh, not an issue. But if you look at how our food and where our food is produced, it's the biggest driver of greenhouse gas emissions and Absolutely. the pressure on native habitats. It's, it's all ag. Mm-hmm. And, and then you get the secondary effect where it's urban sprawl or growth, uh, depending on how you, um, uh, <laughs> put the moniker on there on then on farmland. So it's funny because farm, you know, farms displace native habitat, change ecosystems. And then, you know, the continued urban sprawl by the city, then pushes out farms because they're too close to yep. <laughs> and and that like cycle is long term it's unsustainable it just doesn't work mm-hmm. um and so if you look at it on a 50 or 100 year horizon i think that indoor ag plays a huge role into yeah. how lettuce is grown but on a very micro scale is it going to change tomorrow is like something magical going to happen and there's going to be a trillion dollars show up for vertical farms <laughs> like I don't think that that's the case. And that's why the money that's been deployed needs to be very carefully spent and built into facilities that generate outcomes, that generate mm-hmm. solutions where farmers potentially can see investing in them in those kinds of production systems and where they become a method of production a la a tractor. Do you think one of the reasons that there's sort of a a tendency to be more of a technology company as in in vertical farming in part because there is a lack of farmers and more people who are being educated as technology or engineers or science data scientists yeah i think that in some ways you know it's uh it's a solution searching for a problem Mm. with data and engineering and you know, just that kind of push to solve a problem, solve a problem with a solution that may or may not be appropriately geared towards. Mm -hmm. I do think, though, that there's a huge role for technology in agriculture. And it's obviously there. And it's the reason why our food system works. Uh, It's why I'm an agricultural engineer. Yeah, exactly. Uh, Yeah, exactly. So so there are elements to that. I just think that you can get a little bit too far down that path where everything becomes a solution that is highly engineered, overly technical. And, you know, at the end of the day, all you needed was a little bit of duct tape to keep, you know. And I'm not like (laughs) advocating for just patching (laughs) solutions. I'm just saying that like that holistic approach to problem solving can get lost if your solution has to be highly engineered, overly done. Mm-hmm. I mean, plants do kind of grow outside. They do. <laughs> they're usually pretty happy. Just just conceptually, they're happy. Yeah. And so, so all this engineering and environment creation is is highly important. But the difference between perfection in that and really good, uh, it's like a diminishing value of return. So you can get really good results to get perfection every single time. Well, that's that that might be a different story as to how engineered the solution needs to be. Mm-hmm. You know, even like you know, temperature and humidity and environment. What do the plants see? And 
they're seeing an environment and then but your sensors are seeing something slightly different yeah and then you get really locked into what your sensors see and you try to solve problems that are very nuanced and detailed that the plants may or may not be experiencing exactly or even if they are might not have a net impact but the cost to fix you know like an HVAC system turning on and off and just the native kind of flow of temperature and humidity out of a HVAC system um, to get that perfectly dialed you you can you can do that so that it's always coming out exactly the same or you can let some mixing happen and let the environment stabilize right that's more your world but my sense is always there's always a more expensive solution the question is does that solution work well Mm -hmm. and that's where i think technology can be overdone and at farmbox we have very few sensors and it was a lot of reliance on being able to see things and i'm not a trained grower but to be able to sort of get the flow of how things look on day two versus day three, sort of be able to diagnose problems before they happen. You know, that's the role of a grower. And I know that there's like, it feels often like there's this big push to replace growers with sensors and technologists Mm -hmm. and uh, control systems operators. I do understand that as well, because there's certainly not enough great growers. But at the same time, like, we have to bring smart people into it. And the plant side is really important it's not all engineering yeah i really you know want to see data used as a tool for growers as opposed to replacing or supplanting the grower you know speaking of of growing plants in you know very precise conditions or variable conditions inside or outside could you grow microgreens outside or in a greenhouse sure i mean microgreens are traditionally grown in a greenhouse uh, in a shallow flat, and that's okay. where a lot of the big growers have done, you know, that's the production method. And they're beautiful. I mean, they, they have flood tables, and they work really well. However, like, I developed the system, and that's that's the tractor I was using, mm-hmm, you know, and, mm-hmm. and some growers use a greenhouse. And, like, I like to think about it, that's their tractor. And the net importance of whatever system or growing system or the you know, you get into this benefit, cost benefit analysis. I call it, you know, what's the yield on your cost? Like, what are you getting out of it for what do you spend? Yeah. And so at each level, you could go out and uh, on your back porch and put, you know, a little flat, a 10 by 20 tray, grow microgreens. And you could harvest those and you could ask yourself, okay, I spent $10 on this project and I yielded how much worth of microgreens, yep, you know, exactly. like just as a basis, right? Yeah. Or to the most technolo- technologically advanced system, the costs are much higher, but therefore the yields should be too. And what you're looking for is the operational spread between your cost of production, totally loaded with what you're selling it for. Yep. And this is a little bit of a, a Warren Buffett plug here, but if EBITDA is often brought up, this idea of earnings before interest tax and depreciation as a metric. In a farm, like what we're talking about, you have to depreciate your assets as a part of that yield on costs. So your costs must include 
the replacement of this growing system. Nice. Or else, like what happens in seven years or 10 years, depending on the production? Who's going to pay for this next iteration? It's sort of burning itself out. And it's a little bit um, in these high capital businesses, a little bit of like financial short sleight of hand, shorthand to make things look a little bit better than they are. But like when I talk yield on cost and getting that spread, it's like, how does it drop down to the bottom line? And that's really, I think the, um, if you can get that revenue to come all the way down the profit and loss statement, then the end of the day, you can do it again and again and again and improve that margin spread, whether that's a few percent or 10% or 20%, that gives you power to run a conventional business as a vertical farm or greenhouse farmer or, you know, as an outdoor farmer. So, mm-hmm. and, and for the engineers and technology people listening to this podcast, I mean, we also call that efficiency. Yeah. It's right what you get out for what you put in yeah. output over input yeah. it's the it's the same idea um is how many kilograms of output or how many units did you produce and sell i guess really an efficiency would be produce selling is up to your marketing team yeah. maybe <laughs> which in your case was you but you know but then what are your input costs for yeah. that you know for my phd i looked at water use efficiency which was kilograms of yield over kilograms of water introduced or used and you can do that for energy you can do that for fertilizer you can do that yeah. for also you know pick pick your your parameter and how efficient are you growing and and when i think about you know there are some companies out there who are like we're going to sell you know we're going to compete with walmart we're going to sell lettuce for a dollar a head Okay, so your your top line is a dollar. So what is your your denominator? Yeah, your numerator is a dollar. What is your denominator to be profitable? Yeah, and especially with talk uh, about scaling, like you yeah. do, you have to be able to you scale up to, to sell enough volume of that lettuce, yeah, right, a, to make up for the costs of the production. Yeah, it, the volume that you need produces a volume game. So no matter what, you need a lot. Mm-hmm. And so if you're making money with produce, your farm has to be big, it has to be efficient, it has to have very little waste. But if you're a technology company, maybe you're selling the technology to other people who have to do the same things. But don't you have to prove that it's going I, to be able to I produce that volume? Of, I, I do agree. I do agree. Um, and there's been a lot of technology companies that have not done a good job of that. And I, um, you know, I'm sure you're like me and you get emailed by a few of those people a week from LinkedIn and you're like, this is not going to (laughs) work, but you're welcome to send me your materials because it seems over-engineered or it seems to be an inappropriate application or or solution or why is your system better than the other person's? And there will always be, it doesn't matter what that is. Uh, what market you're in, I think that that exists in every business. True that, true that. So what are the benefits for you for growing indoors? Like, why did you choose, you went and you had an office space, so I guess you're like, okay, I can try this at scale. Why not build a little mini greenhouse in your backyard? Like, why why stick with indoors? We could have. I just knew nothing about it. Okay, fair. Early on, I was shied away from greenhouse because... You know, with Seattle, right? Everybody's like, oh, Seattle's so dark. You don't have enough light. And 
since then, I've been to the Netherlands mm. more than a few times. And you realize, oh, this climate's really similar. And it seems to be there's a lot of greenhouses here. So Aren't you practically at the same latitude? Yeah, it's like exactly <laughs> the same. And it's just funny to me to think about that and go, oh, well, that's just somebody's opinion. Like, obviously, there are ways to do this. Um, and get your light levels correct so that mm-hmm. you have production in the winter. Well, also, I mean, the greenhouse, yeah. it, there's a reason we call it the greenhouse effect, right? Because they traps the heat, heat. from the yeah. sun. Yeah. So you can very easily grow in a greenhouse yeah. in, in a northern yeah, latitude, latitude, as long as there is some sun. Yeah. as long as there's a little bit of sun. So greenhouses are great. I'm not a vertical farm But it is only. totally different. It's a totally different indoor. environment. It's way more dynamic. Yeah. I think it's a totally viable, like, obviously, there's been a lot of investment. There's a lot of big companies that are Mm -hmm. in that space. And it's a great technology in the right environment. And it works well. And it delivers a high-quality product that people, um, you know, seem to buy. So in a lot of ways, I think vertical farms and greenhouses are running in parallel paths, though one is, you Mm. know, far more expensive per square foot. And so the question is, can you get that much yield for all that infrastructure that you're putting in and taking moisture out of the air and keeping the temperature right and putting the light on the plants? Does all that work the same as in a greenhouse? You know, you you kind of bring up a question for me because when I think about the technology investments in, say, a vertical farm versus what's in a greenhouse, greenhouses are, are simple structures with simple systems usually but they are way more complex in how and understanding how that indoor that greenhouse environment interacts with the outdoor environment sunlight temperature rain hail right all all the things um that then i think about well what you need to invest in with a greenhouse is a good grower right a good grow team who's good at understanding how to manipulate the different levers available in a greenhouse to keep the plants happy where I feel like indoors maybe the growers can be excuse this word maybe a little more lazy and the reason I say that is because when I especially with cannabis it's interesting how I feel like there's been this swap this crossover um, between these two industries where lettuce and tomatoes and vegetable production is going from greenhouse to to indoor and cannabis is going from indoor to greenhouse (laughs) but what i see with cannabis is that you have these indoor growers who are really good at growing indoors and then you put them in a greenhouse and they are clueless you know like they were used to the lights turning on for 12 hours and always the same output and that hvac system and this pumps is you know and it's just like always the same Right, like very predictable, unless a bulb goes out or something, mm-hmm. right? Or the electricity goes out or a compressor goes out or something. But in a greenhouse, every day, every hour, every minute is different. And you need someone, until we get to AI, I guess, and even AI, I would argue you need someone to be able to interpret that output. But you need, you need people to be able to communicate with the plant, Yeah. right? To understand what the plant, what do you need to flip a switch or are your plants going to be okay for an hour under 85 degrees yeah. right or do you panic all of a sudden because it's 85 degrees and you're out of range yeah there's no doubt that greenhouses as you know conventionally thought of are very active systems mm-hmm. and they rely heavily on a grower yeah so let's fast forward to now 
now you are the VP, a VP of Unfold. Yeah. Yep. So uh, tell us about Unfold. What are you doing there? Yeah, so I, I was hired on at Unfold to develop out what we call internally the plant performance team. And the idea of plant performance is looking at the plants that we're growing and creating the right environment for them to grow in and the right management practices. We think about the idea of growing plants as it's currently being done in a vertical farm as an early stage of a much longer process by which the inputs that have been looked at are technology and data and lighting and HVAC and just even the spatial design. Mm. One of the components that has not been overly worked on is what are you putting in there? What's your starting? What's the, what are the seeds that you're using to grow? The plants what, themselves. What are the plants? What's yeah. the biology? So when we think of that equation, you know, it's it's the genetics by the environment, by the management practice gives you the result, if mm. you will. So great genetics in a terrible environment with a bad grower equal terrible results, <laughs> right? And what's happening is you've got reasonable genetics and you've got really dialed management practices and reasonably good growers and that comes together and you get a good output relative. The question is, how much better can the genetics be? And how do you build genetics that are ideally suited for the vertical farming environment? Mm -hmm. So at Unfold, uh, there are multiple different components to building that out. Um, you know, there's a genetics team. There's uh, my team, which which is focused on the environment and the management. And then there's a, a digital team that's trying to synthesize those results and to help make our programs smarter as they go through and ultimately bring better seed to the market for growers to grow more effectively, more efficiently with less inputs, with better yield, whether that's weight or mass, like that's kind of how the U.S. market thinks about it. But yield could also be thought of in terms of color or texture or something that you're looking for that's very okay. specific uh, to go into a mix or even um, sometimes... Uh, you might look at it as detailed as nutrient values. Uh, so it's it's a it's a it's a nuanced business compared to Farmbox, but in many ways it's it's similar in that you're trying to bring great products to the market for customers. This time more of a B two B relationship. I mean, I guess Farmbox was B two B, but it, you know we're servicing growers mm -hmm. to help them bring better products to their customers and thereby create a better you know, we could be looked at as cost or it could be looked at as the overall output of a farm, but to help f make farms better yeah. uh, through the genetics, which hasn't the vertical farming industry, even though it's like 10 years old, let's just say roughly, it's still in its infancy. We haven't even started the process and genetics are a long term play. Yeah. And we're talking about traditional breeding. We're talking about bringing new lines and new products to market. And then within the existing product lines to improve them so that they perform better under lights or higher humidity or different temperatures, that kind of thing. So that uh, maybe we're helping to prevent tip burn with genetics. All those things are the genetics are responding to an environmental condition and maybe there's limitations, but maybe there's not. I mean, obviously, 
tomatoes are now 40 feet long. They they, they didn't start out like that. Right. Or, they started like 40 a 40 meters long. You know, they just were these <laughs> shrubby things. And, and, and you know, the, the industries have created these genetic lines, whether you're in the kind of the lettuce market or the tomato market or peppers or cucumbers or spinach. They're all very different. Sometimes they have uh, yield output goals. Other times it's more about you know, common things are disease resistance. Well, that's what I wanted to ask you because, I mean, traditionally breeding programs are about increasing yield and disease resistance, right? And so my first thought is, okay, how is the breeding program different for a vertical farm? You mentioned yield and different yield, but is it also those quality characteristics like leaf tip burn and flavor and and stuff like that? Are are we as concerned about disease resistance? You know, the disease resistance part of it is sort of, if you will, built into many of the commercially available products. These were bred for outdoor environments that have been adapted for indoor environments. Mm -hmm. So the question is, like, how much of that disease resistance is needed and is that helping? And oh, um, maybe you, it could be hurting. I don't know. I, I I'm not a no. I know, but that's I but didn't even it, think about it, that. It, but it could. It you might have had a situation where you had exceptional yield, and the adjacent plant had good yield but disease resistance, mm-hmm. and the exceptional yielder maybe had some disease. Uh, uh, you know, could could be affected by some disease, and if you go back into this quote-unquote, pipeline of products, there's the opportunity to find some things that have been looked over because the requirements for an outdoor grower are so much different than an indoor grower. Yeah. But I think if you look at things like Pythium or something like that, um, could you have uh, a spinach that's resistant to Pythium? That's kind of a concept, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, you know, Pythium in hydroponic systems is present. There's a lot of ways to build around that. So it's like, again, like good genetics, like maybe the, maybe there is, you know, something that we can do on that front with spinach, or maybe we can find the spinach varieties that do well there. And then the environment and the management practices also reduce that problem. So now you've got an optimal growing environment at the root zone for some product like spinach. That sort of is a market changing connection where Mm. it's not the genetics or the environment or the management, it's all three of them together, and then it creates a product that can go to market at scale. Yeah, that's. I've heard that for greenhouse tomatoes, that before the 90s, that greenhouse tomatoes were known as water bombs, because they had no flavor, because they, they were trying to use field-grown tomatoes and grow them in a greenhouse, which had a different environment, and so there was breeding around that to try to find varietals, tomato varietals that grew well in a greenhouse to mm. achieve, you know, better characteristics, I guess, than a field-grown tomato. Do, I mean, for say a lettuce plant that you're going to grow in a vertical farm, do you start with a greenhouse varietal or a field varietal or a, it, like? It depends. <laughs> it depends. I would say that they're all varietals, right? They just might perform a little bit better in certain environments and the question is how can you scale those up to match your environment i mean what is the environment right i mean that's that's what i i I talk to some cannabis growers and i'm and sometimes i'm really impressed because they're like we're not going to try to grow the the cultivar that was bred in humboldt we're not going to try to grow that same cultivar in Texas, where it's hot and humid, 
we're going to breed, right, a new cultivar, a new strain that works well in this environment. When I think about a vertical farm and the challenges that I help growers deal with all the time, which is high humidity and poor airflow, <laughs> usually, I mean, is that something we're looking for? Is is a plant that can grow in... Yeah, wouldn't it be great to have a plant that could grow, like, in no light? <laughs> like, in a sopping wet environment? Right, white and, asparagus. Yeah, yeah, like, exactly. <laughs> I think that there's there's ways to push the, the envelope of those parameters. I mean, if you could have a plant that has great performance in 5% higher humidity, like, that has cost savings it associated really does. Yeah. or it could hire you could have a higher temperature running you know yeah. depending on where you are with the vertical farm you're cooling mostly and if you could run it a little bit warmer you wouldn't have to cool as much i i don't think that it's it's a foregone conclusion that the the crops that we have are you know set in stone they're all malleable they're all kind of moving through a process of evolution based on you know, selective breeding and people who are smarter than me making decisions about what is working and what is not through the use of data and feedback from growers. And those two things come together and start to identify more rapidly how you select for better producing plants in a given environment. Mm -hmm. And that's the, that's the metric by which we need to think about and in theory, right, my theory here is that if over time you develop this better lettuce variety, right, and five years from now this gets released onto the market that fundamentally revises how vertical farms are designed and grown because you don't need certain controls or mm -hmm. you can do things that are mm -hmm. differently. And then that environment moves or changes you know, I often ask, what is what is the vertical farming environment? Like, it's the idea that, like, it's static and it doesn't change or the parameters are extremely well set. And that may or may not be the same for every farm. And not everybody has the capital to be able to do that. Um, and also, once that capital is deployed and you've got 200 micromoles or 300 micromoles or whatever your lighting levels are, you can sometimes take advantage of that or you can't. Do you have CO2? Do you not have CO2? Like how much cooling do you have in your room? And what is possible from that plant? And then you start to get into the details of how much energy went in and how efficient mm -hmm. is our, each particular system to come up with the solution of, is this a better genetic line? And, and the point of Unfold, I think, is to bring that all together and help growers make better selections and bring better products to market for them to grow and to sell to their customers. How, how do you get that feedback from growers? I mean, who do you, you, you ask that question, what is the vertical farm environment? I mean, are you just asking that question in a vacuum or are, do you have a network of growers or do you have a community? You know, do you, do you go to indoor ag con and, and grab the microphone and ask that question? <laughs> Maybe that's just yeah. me that does that. Yeah. Um, <laughs> That is definitely you. Um, I What we do, we have an innovation partner program that is run in such a way where it's a collaborative relationship where growers are screening new varieties that we are bringing to market. Okay. One of the things that I've learned is like you think that 
uh, seed is somehow just available, right? The, it has to be built. It has to be created. There has to be, it's grown outdoors predominantly. There's a process by which you can bring seed to market and it does not happen overnight. And so to be able to get good data from farmers about things that are in their growing environment is a real necessity to be able to make decisions about what scales up. Yeah. In addition, the reason why I'm in California so much is we're building out a facility in Davis where we are going to be screening plants that come out of our, our program. And so there's breeding and then they go into screening and then that information can go back and help better inform the breeding program. And additionally, those best things that are coming out of the screening program can then be working through a commercialization process, which takes years. This is not like turn on the lights. It's it's a years-long process. It requires a lot of hard work, and there's a lot of capital invested by the time that you actually get the bag of seed to market. Mm-hmm. And um, I, for sure, underappreciated that when I was at Farmbox, and I was like, well, why don't you have any seed? Yeah. Like, what do you mean you're out? Like, it's they're like, well, it's it's August. We don't get our seed until September or October. And you're like, well, that doesn't help me. You know, like, so the impatience that I had at Farmbox to be out on like seeds that we needed was is now sort of comical because I now see like just how I didn't know enough about the production system that was supplying us that I was so reliant on. And the seed vendors across the board are part of the food system that not everybody sees all the time, but are instrumental in bringing products to, to market and keeping products on the shelf. And it's a complicated and long supply chain um, that's global. I bet there's some listeners who didn't even realize that lettuce produces seed. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, lettuce, lettuce, a lettuce plant when you, when it goes to flower is somewhere between three and five feet tall and puts out quite a bit of seed. Wow. You have to put a bag over it, and there's a whole you process. Do? Yes, and I have seen this now, and I have a whole new respect for how seed is harvested. Uh, and lettuce being one example, tomatoes a whole another thing. Yeah, um, but uh, there's growers out there who are just growing to it. produce seed, right? That's it. And there are there's a lot in California. There's they're in Idaho. There's some really mm-hmm. big companies that are involved in that. Yeah, so there's a lot of seed growers that are of various scales. Some of are producers. Um, some are uh, production treatment. Um, the whole gamut, everything that you can imagine, uh, with all different types of seeds. Everything from corn to soybeans to lettuce to tomatoes to peppers. You know, I'm I, sorry. I, I learned recently that the sunflower fields outside of Davis uh, in Dixon, I don't know if you've had the pleasure to drive by those. I just learned a few months ago that those sunflowers are grown to produce seed. And that seed is then grown, is then shipped to Ukraine to grow sunflowers for sunflower oil. And the reason, one of the reasons anyway, I was told that we're growing seed here as opposed to sunflowers for the oil themselves is that we don't have enough land here. We have enough land to produce seeds and then we ship it to somewhere else that has more land to grow for oil. Yeah, that's that's very common. And there's even separation that needs to occur to make sure that you've got seed production in one region and your main production in another. You don't want to lose crops. 
There, oh, good call. There, there's, it's like I said, it's a, a global supply chain. So seeds that we might bring to market in the U.S. may be grown uh, in Europe or they might be grown in South America. The actual seed itself. But a lot of the work in the R&D happens at facilities like what we're building at Davis. And the scalability, taking a seed that we like, that's got a good product, and taking it into what we call a finished line, where that product is homogenous, if you will, of its production attributes, that takes years and a process and a team to be able to bring that to market. And then eventually it's superseded by the next best thing. Mm-hmm. Does it matter if that seed, if that plant that's used to produce the seed is grown in the same environment that you're going to cultivate the plant in? That's a good question. I'm not 100% sure. Typically, you know, I'm thinking about some of the production regions and where things are grown. A lot of times seed will be produced in one location because you know, it's going to flower and some of them are open pollinated. So you don't want a whole bunch of things mixing. And next thing you know, you've got a cross that becomes your seed. You want them to, you know, two different varieties to cross. And then you've got the seed that is something new and different. You want it to self-pollinate. So you can't have a lot of seed uh, drift for pollen. And in order to be able to have the perfect production, you know, these mats of acres of like hydroponic systems that look exactly the same, that has to be grown in a different location and it takes a much longer time. You know, you, you could be in, in the ground for six months uh, on a lettuce plant. Oh, wow. And compared to, you know, 30 days for something that you're harvesting, the edible part. And by the time of that end of that, you know, months long process where the plant goes to seed, it doesn't taste like lettuce anymore. I it's bet. Like, it is probably... Uh, <laughs> Pretty bitter. And yeah, anything. not something you want to put on the plate. Um, so it's just a different production strategy. They're different farmers who do it. Um, and they just have very different business models. It's very interesting. So for those microgreen seeds that you couldn't get in August, is that because the plants that were grown to produce that seed were during a certain period of time and they weren't ready by August? Yeah, think about it like this. Like, so, so holistically, you could look at the calendar and you could say, well, today we have to make a decision for what we want a year from now. Mm. And we have to have the available stock of seed to go out and plant the seeds to make new plants to scale up our inventory to be able to be harvested next august right yeah and so now you've got this new volume of seed you made a whole bunch of assumptions and here i come you know before the seed's been cleaned and i'm going well why don't you have any and they're like well because you didn't tell us two years ago oh wow like like it it could be going back that far now, there was always workarounds and solutions in different varieties, but you know, with the, the specific seed that I'm talking about was uh, red vein sorrel. That was kind of always a challenge and there are different qualities of red vein sorrel hmm. and there's different leaf textures and flavor profiles and the amount of veining on the leaf and how they looked. And you know, like I had oh, wow. the certain go-tos, but then when they were out, they were just out. It's not like they're gonna create more and you gotta wait. Um, and that's why in a vertical farm environment, it's really important because there is no seasonality. So you have to either get your production in North America in the summer or South America in the winter. 
and then that's when the, the seed is produced. And those growing windows, like as quote-unquote independent of seasonality of vertical farm is, the inputs are seasonal. And that's what gets kind of tricky to, as these farms are scaling, the demand and the consumptions are changing and they're trying to forecast. Uh, and that's, you know, that's the challenge of the seed business is to be, you know, it's the same thing as the produce industry. It's like, uh, never be short, never be long, and certainly never be out. Like, right. you know, like, <laughs> you know, like, it's, be it, perfect. Be perfect. <laughs> like, you have to hit the nail on the head. Yeah. And that's challenging. So, so is there a business, a future business opportunity for people out there to have a vertical farm business that's just for producing seed year-round to serve a year-round production operations of vertical farms? Yeah, I, I do think so. And maybe we'll scratch that question. Okay, yeah. <laughs> I mean, if if these plants are so much taller, I imagine then you're losing maybe some, some rack space, some a few levels. Yeah, but I mean, like, the kind of behind the scenes is, is you'd, you'd put that into an area where you don't need to be in an urban environment mm-hmm. and you yeah. could grow in a controlled environment. I will say on the production side that greenhouses can be used for certain crops because of the ability to have more control over how they're grown and especially how they're brought to seed and to prevent viruses, you know, tomatoes especially, Mm. um, to be able to prevent viruses from being transferred by the seed. It's a very controlled environment. Uh, It's like high level of what I, you know, quote unquote food safety, but um, sanitary practices in the same kind of vein uh, to a level where you want to eliminate any viruses that could be passed from, you know, your seed crop to another farm. And that's a very that's a very closed production system, but I do think that more of that will go on over time. Hmm. I know that we talked a little bit about profitability and, and efficiency, um, EBITDA, yield on cost. What do you think is the biggest or some of the biggest barriers to vertical farms being profitable or more profitable? Well, I think we, you know, as an industry, have to get the um, the unit economics right, uh, where you're making money on that package of salad that goes out the door or that consumable product. That seems to be the the biggest thing, and and maybe maybe farms have 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 worked that out. But if they have, like just thinking this through, if we're able to get some kind of net income that drops all the way down to the bottom line and it is profitable is it profitable enough to finance these vertical farms in the way that they are being financed which traditionally has been less patient capital so depending on how you would define that it could be more risky types of capital venture could be private equity money um, and I really I think what needs to happen over the long term is that these projects need to get down to institutional level debt so that it's a commercial real estate product where these are production facilities that have investment at very low cost at very stable returns that you don't need to be making 30 percent margin that you could make five ten percent but you have it at such a consistent rate that you can afford your real estate and afford the depreciation of the entire building so i think that the capital structure is going to work itself out over time because just right now there's the venture side of the business 
investment uh, is changed drastically. There's a lot less tolerance for risk in the marketplace right now. Mm. And when there's less tolerance for risk, there's less deals moving into assets that are perceived risky and whether they are or aren't isn't always the like what they're judged by. It's like, it's what's the perception? Is this going to be uh, a home run? And does venture underwrite a building? And the answer is probably not. Hmm. And so getting unit economics right to get profitability right, to be able to underwrite with really truly patient capital, long-term capital that's at a very low rate of return that has a low risk profile, that's how you like change, you know, big macroeconomics. Like it's like an ag loan or something like that, you know, like how you underwrite um, or how you you put together the business case to underwrite a piece of uh, farmland, right? That's way easier than a vertical farm because it's been done. But uh, Well, that's what I was just going to ask. I mean, why aren't vertical farm operations going after more traditional bank loans and investments? Why does it have to be venture capitalists? Well, I think that early on it made sense because the venture money was there to take appropriate risk. And there was a lot of risk, and I'm not saying that that risk is about risk it. because it was such a nascent industry and right. nobody had any numbers there to was, back up really yeah. the claims and stuff. Yeah, there was going to be a lot of falling down, and the industry has a lot of promise for truly pivotal change. But at scale, it's like you have to be able to turn it into solar panels or wind turbines or other renewable energy systems where the price is dropping on implementation. Mm-hmm not, you know, staying the same or going up. You know, you need to get the flywheel of the manufacturing process to build these facilities up and running. And a lot of the things you work on, yeah, you're yeah. part of that flywheel to um, help reduce risk, right? Yeah. To say, well, when we install this HVAC system, you're not going to rip it out in six months because it doesn't work. <laughs> right. Or at least... Yeah. That's the goal. That's the goal. <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. What about... What about efficiency? Like, and and let's talk about, well, you can talk about efficiency however you want, but where's the big, biggest opportunity you see for vertical farms to be more, quote unquote, efficient? That's a great question. Where's the efficiency in vertical farms? I think that uh, the efficiency comes when you have scale and um, the idea that sales and scale solve all problems. You know, like it's the idea you just keep growing and get it bigger and bigger and bigger and your incremental costs to manage the system become lower. Mm. And so you get to take a management team or your engineering team and spread it across a much wider pie of lettuce sales, if you will, or a much larger chunk of that pie. But the, the challenge with efficiency is it wants to be like how much energy you're using or how much water you're using. It wants to be metric based. It wants to be like, you know, kind of this ESG reporting methodology. Yeah. And the only thing that I would caution the industry is like, is that if it's just a metric based thing, make sure those metrics are like really sound because if they're not, they're just kind of malleable. Like it kind of tells the story, but then it doesn't really actually accomplish what you want. And can you give an example? Uh, sure. I mean, you know, I'm I'm looking around um, 
uh, your office here and you have an accreditation uh, for sustainable buildings, right? And I was, I was also accredited at one point in my career and it came down to a checklist. And mm -hmm. to be able to actually implement this checklist, you had to have a team of people that knew how to implement the checklist. And it became much more about the efficiency of the implementation of the checklist <laughs> than the actual scale of which you're making sustainability decisions. Mm. And so you could take and very quickly distill down how much, you know, in the architecture industry, how much accreditations were going to cost. Uh, and to do so, most developers then would go, well, we're just looking for the plaque on the wall we're not actually looking for the highest plaque on the you're wall. right we're not like doing too much here and because too much costs a lot of money and it doesn't give me any return so i think that that's kind of uh an example where it helps drive and change the industry and maybe it's easier to build those types of projects and maybe the net impact is everybody is more sustainable but i don't know if that moves the needle fast enough yeah I think one of the problems is that we don't have well-defined metrics for our industry. We just published a 100-plus page lit review on energy and water use in the controlled environment ag industry across greenhouse, indoor, cannabis, non-cannabis. And the way that metrics are reported when it comes to just, I'll just say, energy there were literally 12 different metrics that we were trying to normalize into one because it's impossible to compare. If, if one grower is kilowatt hours per kilogram and another one is units per kilowatt hour, I mean, just those two alone, what the heck does that even mean, right? Yeah. And then, then you have the building industry that wants everything on a square footage basis, but is it on a footprint? Is it on a planted area? What is your, how do you define your planted area, right? I mean, it, it's just mind boggling that we haven't even come together to decide what metric or, or pick three metrics that we are all going to base our analysis on, right? Our self-evaluation even on to even come, you know, so that you're not even comparing necessarily to others, but you're always using the same metric for yourself to drive efficiency and profitability. Yeah. And this is where the checklist system that I just spent some time questioning actually does work because mm. there is an organization that brings those people together. That says you have to report it like this. And that this is the methodology. This is the way we measure. This is the standard for yeah. how white your roof is. Like, right? like, like these are the types <laughs> of things that can be defined. I just don't think the industry is all that collaborative. And it's, it's kind of sad because some of the early folks in – um, working on these problems or challenges uh, never, I think, intended for it to get this kind of like uh, isolationist, if yeah. you will. Yeah. And it's going to take a breaking down of some of those barriers and say, look, it's not like I don't have to tell somebody how I'm doing it. I just have to tell somebody that this is a real reported number right. of yield per square foot. And the fact that square foot is actually referring to growing square footage versus square footage at the bottom of a 10 layer rack versus the square footage of a facility that has walkways. And yeah. so normalizing uh, 
field to greenhouse to vertical farm uh, production rates per square foot across the same crop, and then the associated water use, energy use, time to market. Pick, yeah. Just like pick <laughs> one. If you just did it with like romaine, right? You could you could just like standardize it and say this is the example. This is how we want to do it, and um, but. That doesn't happen. And I think it's happening some in the food safety realm mm. where where folks are working together, but not all the time. And uh, I don't know why that's exactly proprietary in my opinion, but it's always something that we struggled with at Farmbox because you felt like you're on an island. And we weren't technology providers and we weren't data providers, but we wanted to learn what others were doing. But it, the, the way that those companies were built just we're flexible to right. that. And how do you even like measure for yourself or or against others how well you're doing? I mean, if we say that you can grow 65 kilograms per square meter of tomatoes in a greenhouse, right? Like 20 years ago, that was really good. Now it's, you know, 90 or 100. But at least we have 20 years ago to compare to, yeah. you know, across an industry. It's not even an individual grower. It's just that we've gotten more sophisticated. We've gotten better over 20 years. We think that a greenhouse today is the same as a greenhouse 20 or 40 years ago, and it, and it isn't. But, and we have a metric to show how it's improved. Not necessarily how we made the improvement, like you said, yeah. but that there is an improvement. Yeah. Um, so you, then you can make an argument, a better argument, that this is a viable industry because look at how it's improved over time and we're just going to, you know, either sustain that or continue to push the envelope and grow it more. And and I even think about, you know, regulations. If you want to get those traditional bank loans, like they're going to want to know metrics and and if those traditional bank loans are are used to giving out loans to field farmers we should know what those metrics are Mm -hmm. because they're going to understand that language yeah yeah so i also enjoy the commercial real estate market learning about that and kind of having worked in that in various different levels but it's like i always think about it like the plants are tenants right and they're either giving you something like what's their output and i always thinking about a dollars per square foot and like that metric to me is really important because it normalizes across your production system for the revenue output potential but that's even not comparable but mm-hmm. it is it is kind of like well you've invested all this capital and how much are you getting out of that capital and how do we normalize those things so somebody can say oh this is a better way to squeeze water out of the air you know like as an example of something that a lot of energy is spent on that people don't necessarily always realize in vertical farms it's like squeezing water out of the air is like a huge part of your energy maybe it's 20 25 percent at least yeah yeah and then you got 50 percent in your lighting and maybe you know the other 25 just conceptually is cooling but it'd be good to know, like, how are people doing this more efficiently? And is the question that I would go back to is, is it a trade secret to know that there's a better way and that you're squeezing a few percent more water out of the air for your energy use? Is that going to be your call to action and your um, market differentiation point? Or is that something that you could share with the industry so that everyone can be moving forward together? Yeah. And 
Um, lift everybody up yeah, together. Yeah, lift everybody yeah. up. Like, you're still going to compete on the store shelves. That's about brand and about product quality and about operations and price point. But, like, if we have something that, you know, we literally could be doing better, um, you know, with less energy, less water, um, I think that's that's important. I agree. I agree. And to me, that, that makes me a better designer. You know, if I know that, you know, this strategy that we tried produced more or less, right, from the energy that was used or the system that was selected, then that can help us inform right it informs us to do a better job on the next one right mm -hmm. like maybe we just skip that system because that didn't work as yeah. well as you know we thought it was going to be but also i think you know in terms of the government and regulators you know starting to come after this industry or at least starting to pay attention to it i should put it that way is if we can demonstrate that we are producing a value <laughs> which is let's just say food in this conversation and and the output is the food is the volume is the weight of whatever we're producing for an energy input or a water input or whatever input then they are less likely i think to say oh you are valueless instead they might say you are invaluable because you are producing something from mm. this right like you're not doing it for nothing yeah you're serving a community, you're serving a region, you're feeding people, you're, you know. It's not a niche production system. And I, I think, again, while there are many businesses in this industry, loosely industry, the real work that needs to be done is to build the actual industry itself. Mm -hmm. And not every company can do everything. And not every uh, idea is going to be the next greatest thing. But to have more collaboration, I think is what's needed. Yeah. And that's why, you know, going to uh, being involved in, in, you know, the various different trade shows and going and talking with growers and is so important to develop those relationships. They're not just the company that's you're like fighting for investment against. They're the company that together the investment that you both attract somehow gives you better ability to attract more industrial uh, or more of the industry underneath you to be able to push both companies up, whether that's lighting or HVAC or whatever. Or yeah. Familiarity. I mean, I think just installation efficiency is not yet optimized. Um, but to put together these buildings, like everybody's building these bespoke, you know, structures and uh, to normalize that a little bit so that uh, it's not quite, you know, in architecture, the kind of worst thing in the world was like, just like the, uh, the exterior of the wedding cake kind of thing. It's like, just like, how do you want it decorated? <laughs> and, um, you know, same box, got the same systems, got the same square footage. What, what decoration, what color do you want the paint on it? But in some ways, the standardization of that product made it efficient to build. Mm. And uh, in the architecture industry, it's, you know, the more streamlined things can be done and the more manufactured parts can be and there's less bespoke building occurring uh the better the product is and the easier it is to put together and cost effective yeah so i think that there's a, a reckoning that's happening or going to happen in the industry where uh in the control environment industry where more people will come together to look at this holistically at least that's my hope because i think that that's what unlocks the next kind of wave of success yeah yeah
I mean, just generally speaking, I know we're wrapping up here, but you've basically started dabbling in this industry, whether you realize it or not, what, like 14 years ago, you said around 2008, like thinking about microgreens and how you could start a lean business or whatever. How have you seen the industry, either CEA or vertical farming, sort of evolve? Like when you first got into it, what was it like? And has it changed much? Is it basically the the same? In so many ways, it's the same. And in so many ways, it's different. (laughs) That's a fair answer. Like early on, everybody thought you're crazy. And just like talking about plants in an indoor environment, that was like not a thing. People sort of understood greenhouses, and the common denominator was always if you'd been to Epcot at Walt Disney World. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, I've seen that. Right, right, right. You know, Merle, yeah. yeah, Merle. yeah. Everybody knows Merle. Everyone should know Merle. Everyone should know Merle. Yeah. Um, so in, in many ways, it was like trying to get a movement together. And, you know, Dixon de Pommier went out and just told everybody about it that would listen. And a lot of people did. They were enamored with the idea and it just set off this like storm of innovation and investment and creativity, problem solving that has yet to really lock in on commercial scale product that can compete in the market. So in many ways, it's evolved so much from like zip tying lights to Uh, wire racks yeah but in other ways it still is nascent in that it doesn't have that penetrating force i mean obviously there's been major deals done but when a vertical farming company replaces a store shelf or can hit distribution price points to be able to go mass into restaurants uh, and own marketplaces where some of the big california growers are feeling the the effect That'll be the moment when it's like a a real industry. And then I just hope that when that happens, that the environmental sustainability embodied in those products is better than the field grown products. Mm -hmm. And I think that that goes back to we still need to get our act together and learn more about what we're doing and growing and how it may be affecting, you know, the greater ecosystem of food production and the sustainability of it. That we actually realize the bullet points uh, that we all list in our presentations and discussions and um, uh, slide decks of why grow indoors, right? Yeah. That that we actually live up to those, our own expectations that we've set. We've set our own bar um, on reducing water, improving food security and safety and blah, 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 right? All the things. Let's actually accomplish that yeah. and not just be like everybody else. We have the opportunity with this new industry to do that. Yeah. All right. So last question, last official question. What do plants crave? You know, I read that when you sent me the list and uh, (laughs) I was thinking about it and maybe plants like that we're talking about crave to be eaten. You know, like like, I'm not going to get into, oh, they crave the right humidity or whatever. Like that's, that's too... (laughs) That's too. That's uh, too on the nose. That's too on the nose. <laughs> but I think that they do. They they want to be, uh, you know, eaten and they want to be nutritious and part of a global food supply. Though you know, I've never really had that conversation with spinach. But like, 
if I were a spinach plant, I might feel um, feel good about uh, contributing to global health. So <laughs> that's awesome. So we need to spread the word. We need to spread spinach to improve health. <laughs> Spinach, lettuce, you name the plants, eat more plants, less meat. Okay, but I have a tip for spinach. If you want to be eaten more, right, and and help with global health, you need to be easier to germinate. (laughs) You and everybody says that to me. I've heard that so many times. I know. It's like, what are they doing? Maybe they don't want to be eaten. They're like, damn it, I keep getting eaten. I'm trying so hard not to grow. (laughs) Yeah, spinach is a tricky one. There's no doubt. So is cilantro, though. So I'm pretty impressed that you were eating. Oh, I got a system for cilantro. Okay, nice, good. That's a... That's That's your trade secret. That's the trade secret. (laughs) How do you get awesome results with cilantro? Good for you. I'm I'm glad somebody has cracked that seed. Literally. (laughs) Literally. All right, Dan. Well, you're not quite done because I have some rapid fire questions for you. Okay. So just one or two sentences if you want to expand. Of course, I might push you on an answer, but just they're meant to be quick. All right. You ready? Okay. Number one, are plants introverts or extroverts? Oh, my gosh. I don't know. These are the types of questions I don't do well on. Uh, (laughs) uh, They're extroverts because they're always growing. I don't know. Okay, and they want to be eaten. They want to be eaten, right. (laughs) They're social. All right, what's the worst advice you've ever gotten about growing microgreens? Uh, Well, somebody told me when I told them this this idea about starting farm boxing, they said, "You're, you're trying to sell fish in the sea. And if I had, if I had listened to that, I would never have started the company. And gotten into the industry well now that there's fewer fish in the sea it might be actually harder <laughs> Maybe. what's the best advice you've ever gotten you know there's been a lot of i've had i've had some really good um mentors along the way that have helped out a tremendous amount but reading the lean startup for me was like a validation that it didn't have to be venture capital and and big and you didn't have to have every single thing figured out that you could start small and that you could learn through an iterative process. And that mm-hmm. kind of gave me the confidence to just go out and do it and say, okay, well, we're gonna try it and we're gonna hope for the best. And if that doesn't happen, then we're gonna figure out plan B and then plan C and then plan D. And eventually we'll get to something that works and we'll go do more of that. It doesn't have to be perfect right out the gate. Yeah. Yeah. Right. All right. If you could design a landscape using microgreens, which would you use? Where would it be? And what would it look like? Oh my uh, well, we used to do these, uh, we used to take various different radishes, sometimes arugula or mizuna or something like that. And I used to write out in our trays, like these various different things, like for uh, the Super Bowl for the Seahawks, it was like, go Hawks. And so I had that in the tray. All like you planted. would see yeah, the yeah, plants like I seeded like that? it. Oh, like I had a cool. template and I put it down and I seeded them in there. And so that's that's how I, that was my topiary of um, that's kind cool. of Zen Garden-esque 
But it was always like advertising. <laughs> so sometimes we do like little waves, and it, it just always something that people. We put it out on display at the farmer's market, and it would always draw people in. That's awesome. Yeah. I like it. Yeah. All right. All right. Well, that's it. That's it? Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Dan. You know, honestly, it, this was so fun. I know I've been, we've been wanting to do this for a while. I'm glad we got to wait and do it actually in person. You know, I think you might have actually been the first vertical farm I ever visited. Oh, really? Yeah, back in probably 2016. Yeah. I think I was up in Seattle probably for a cannabis conference. Yeah. <laughs> I was up there a lot for cannabis conferences. And yeah, you invited me out to your house and I got to see. Yeah. It was awesome. And then I got to see your new yeah. setup and Charlie's. So yeah. um, thank you for introducing me <laughs> to vertical farming and for vertical farming right. Yeah. Yeah. I, yeah. I appreciate that, Nadia. I appreciate what you're doing, doing for the industry. And yeah, it's great to finally get this done. Awesome. Yeah. Well, I can't wait to see you when you're back here in Sacramento. All right. Well, next week. What are you doing? <laughs> <laughs>